Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for this day, as dreary as it is outside. We know that your word is um, a light unto our feet and shows us the path unto salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would illumine that path for us as we study your word from your prophet Micah. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. So I don't remember where we left off on the study sheet, on the on our lesson. Anybody remember what question we ended on? Um, I think we ended with discuss, and we and then we ended discuss. We All right, so we're in Micah chapter two. So if you need a Bible, there's some over there. Um, I don't know that. I mean, we could go spend a lot of time uh, going through each section, but but we're trying to. I'm trying to do something new for me, which is move at a little bit more brisk pace. I usually go verse by verse and take a long time. That's okay. Um, we want to because we want to get to Micah four, especially um, around the holiday, so that because it's it's actually uh, part of our readings uh, at the holiday time, or we'll hear it in in songs and other places. So let's see. Maybe for review, let's let's read chapter two again. And uh, did we read the whole thing? Actually, the, kid, the, kids did. We, the kids did. I made the kids do it. Um, they're good for that. Otherwise, they're quiet. Ethan, do you want to start us off? Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against his family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall pick up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me, to an apostate he blots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. No, just keep going. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you a wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. <laughs> I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. All right. The king will pass before them. So this is one of those chapters. I think I mentioned this last week. Um, there's probably a few things that are worth repeating just for the sake of uh, repetition and memory, which is that there, 
in the in the prophecy we're switching between three different voices at least so there's the voice of the prophet speaking to the people there's the people's response to the prophet and to the lord and there's the lord himself speaking through the prophet to the people right and and it kind of shifts interchangeably between them so when like even ethan reads the whole thing you maybe don't catch where the voices shift uh, that's where the audio bibles are pretty helpful i don't know if you if you have one of those um I use one that's, uh, I don't know where I got it, but, but it's good to have someone read to you, right? And maybe you can catch some of the nuance, but when they change voices, they have different actors do different voices. That, that's also helpful. And they'll add a little music and sound effects to kind of get the mood of the, of the text, you know? Um, but you probably catch, or caught the, the shift in the mood in verse 12. I, this Bible that I'm using has a, uh, has a heading there, Israel Restored. But it's like it's pretty pretty harsh judgment that's been coming through that whole chapter, and then you get to verse twelve and thirteen, and there's this moment. I would say it's like a gospel moment, right? It's it's there is some good news in the midst of all of this, um, both prophecy and accusation, really, against the people. So maybe we start at the end and work our way back backwards this time. <clears throat> so the Lord's promise here is that He will, in verse twelve and thirteen. Because he's been railing against the people as the question to follow along here. Question four says, right? But now, and he's promised that his, their land would be taken to captivity, but here he promises deliverance. How do we see that here? What's he going to do? Bring yeah, bring them together. Maybe a helpful way to, to, to read. Um, I think I mentioned this maybe two weeks ago. I don't know. It all blurs together for me. That, um, that Lutherans in particular, uh, we follow after Luther's method of interpreting the Bible. And there, we talked about actually a couple of things. I think Cassie brought them up. Um, scripture, interpret scripture is one of those principles. So we, the less clear parts of scripture we understand. There's glitter everywhere. Yes. <laughs> the less clear parts of scripture we understand in terms of the more clear, or the clear portions, right? Um, so that's one, one principle. But another one is that we are historical grammatical. Do you remember that, talking about that? Okay, so historical, meaning we, we read the Bible in the context of when it was written, right? And so what, what was going on? Who was Micah? Where, where did he live? Who was he prophesying to, which he tells us at the beginning? Um, who are his contemporaries? So Isaiah and Hosea and uh, Jeremiah. Um, and, and then who are these people that he's talking about? Or how is the prophecy fulfilled historically? So you're thinking first the Assyrians conquering the northern uh, kingdom and then the Babylonians coming and conquering um, the southern kingdom as well. And so he has all of that in mind. That's the context, the history. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us in a more universal sense. Um, it often does. Um, but we need to know who was he talking to immediately and what was their sin and what was, you know, what was he calling them to repentance for. That's the first thing. But the second thing, historical, grammatical. And I know Barbara liked this. So, John, you know, the teachers in the room. Anybody else teachers? Marlene, Marlene you were a teacher too. Well, longer than me. Longer than me. <laughs> See, I don't know all the history and who is who. And so, Marlene was... How we long did you... Together. You taught together for... I love the multi-generation aspect of this congregation. I know it seems like, you know, having all these generations, it's like, well, it's just the same families. But 
having been in two, well, one parish that didn't have that at all. We had one multi-generational family, three generations. Um, and everyone else was either a recent convert or their kids don't go to church or something like that, right? Uh, we had it in Chicago, too, amazingly. It was one of the few congregations that um, had, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation in that congregation. Uh, but it was because you couldn't afford to leave. And you inherited the family house or houses. And so the neighborhood, that immediate context right around the church, were still quite a few of the families um, uh, were living there. But that, that's rare in the city. Uh, but here to have that is beautiful. So Because now, you know, generations teach generations. And it's handing down the faith is really the, the key to that. Well, we were talking about um, grammatical, right? So the teacher's like this. So, yeah, see, you walked in. Uh, I'm not going to diagram sentence because I have no, no memory of how to do that. But one of the, the key, you know, if we just do a very sentence, simple sentence structure, subject, verb, object, and I do this because at least the children know that and the adults remember that enough. Now, if we look at verse 12 and 13, who is the subject? This is a key. Who's the subject? It's first person, singular, if you want to know the part of speech. Who is it? It's God. It's God, right? I, 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 you notice that. I, and then who's the subject? God is, and who's the one then doing the verbs? God's the one doing the verbs. What are the verbs here? And that's to Barb's point. You said, you said gather, right? That was the word you used, okay? Mine has assemble. So assemble and gather and put together and does he have any other ones in there? Well, the, their king in verse 13, who's that? That's not God the Father. This would be God the Son. The Son, yeah. The king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. So the Son um, brings us to the Father. They have the picture of that already there through his death. So, uh, yeah, God is the, sub, the doer, and he's the doer of the verbs. That, that's helpful, although it does break a little bit. There, at the end of verse 12, who's the subject there? Who is they? Hmm, that one's a little bit trickier, maybe. What's the context? God's gathered them like a flock. Who is going to make a noise because of so many people? Who do you think? Mine says, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Hmm, yeah, who's this noisy multitude of men? This is a little bit tricky. Maybe it's not immediately obvious. I'm thinking of Good Friday. Yeah, that's possible. They're going to make a noisy... Who is this noisy multitude? I actually read something about this, but I can't remember where I read it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's the people that God gathers. All right? So he's talking about gathering a multitude, but one of the ways you know it's a multitude is by... It's like when you go to our home, any, pretty much any time except for nap time, you can tell there's a lot of people in the house, right? Because they're so... I know, that's why I come to Bible class this morning and I got the four of them sitting here and they're just... It's like, what happened? Usually they're so loud. Yeah, so they, they that's, that's you. That's the, um, uh, the, the flock that the Lord has put together into his fold, 
right? Into the midst of their pasture, the remnant of Israel, the object of those sentences. And that's, that's immediately the Lord talking about gathering Israel and Judah back together, uh, returning them to the promised land later. Uh, but even more so, it's a picture of the Lord gathering you into the church and then into heaven, of course, on the last day. So you see all that there? So grammatical method is really important. Um, you know, reading it, just reading the words or listening to the words. And it's, uh, maybe it sounds a little analytical, but the, the Lord has chosen to, to, work, <laughs> to work through the word, right? We know this. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. How do you do it? By yeah, by speaking, by his word, whom John tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In him was light and he was the light of men, right? So speaking of Jesus, so the word that the father spoke at creation is his son, right? And that all came out by the breath of the Holy Spirit, right? Who hovered over the face of the deep. It's really beautiful right from the beginning. And then John picks up on that beginning of his gospel. So here God's working. He works through his word um, to gather his sheep. He's working through this prophet to both terror, bring terror upon their conscience, to terrify their conscience, but then to also bring peace to it um, in the promise of restoration. Right? So he's doing it through words. So we have the same thing happen in church. Right? We send prophets. Well, not quite prophets. Although the one hymn says, God um, of the prophets, bless the prophet's sons. Do you know that hymn? It's a good one to sing at an installation. I don't think we sang it. <laughs> um, you, have to, you just have to choose, right, what you're going to sing. You can't sing everything. Um, but actually singing is another way that, that is unique that the Lord instructs us to do, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, to add or to join his word uh, to music, and, and that's pretty powerful too, right? I, I posted a thing on Facebook, actually, on the random like on our this congregation site, um, about how the things that you learn through music go into a part of your brain that that isn't affected by Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah, and we, I've already knew that because I've had the experience that you know I'll be visiting someone and they'll be you know just flat affect, no response. Um, and things that they, that, and then we, you know, we sing a hymn and they'll join in, especially if it's a, one that they knew quite well, you know, one that you would teach the children, that sort of thing. So God joins his, his word to music. He joins it to preaching. Um, to, he joins it to water and baptism, right? It's not the water that does these things, but it's the word, word of God in with the water that does them. Right? And same thing with, with the Lord's Supper. I mean, otherwise it's just bread and wine, right? And it's just maybe a nice thing that you do with your family, right? To gather around a table and have a meal. Uh, but when he adds his word to that, which he did on the night he was betrayed, but um, he commands us to continue that today, then it becomes what he calls the New Testament in his blood, right? A meal that actually brings salvation. And uh, maybe we have a problem with this because we think of... Mm. we don't think of words doing what they say. Did we talk about that last week? I think we did. Or maybe I said it in a sermon. Like I say, everything kind of blurs together for me. Um, that, yeah, the word is, is powerful, as Isaiah says, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to, and then Jesus says, to piercing to the division between bone and marrow. You know, it just gets 
right in. <laughs> right in there. Well, that's Jesus' own way of saying and quoting Isaiah that it gets um, to you and it does what it's said. It's like a scalpel, right? It performs operations on you. <laughs> um, I like the way now retired professor, uh, Dr. Norman Nagel. Do you know Dr. Nagel? Have you heard that name? He was at Valparaiso and then he was at St. Louis Seminary. Um, Dr. Nagel says it this way when he would preach. He would say, let the word of God have its way with you. Right? So we can put up resistance or barriers to God working through his word. Um, but, but in faith, we allow his word to, to inform us, to, to have, as he said, its way with us to, to change us, um, to change the way we think. So that's what's going on here. He's making a promise because they're probably in a pretty bad spot after the first two chapters, the first chapter one and the most of chapter two, right? It was like, this is, this is getting pretty bad. So yes, law gospel would be another way to divide that, right? You've heard that. Um, CFW Walther, the founder of the Missouri Synod, picking up on, on a theme from uh, Martin Luther, um, taught us, taught his, the first generation of pastors really at the seminary um, in the Fort Wayne Seminary, to um, to rightly divide the Word of God, or to rightly distinguish. I prefer distinguish than divide. It's one word, but it's understood in two different ways, right? So to distinguish between the God's law, which is um, a word of accusation and judgment, running with Paul and Romans and Galatians, and then the gospel being the good news of salvation in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and and to rightly distinguish when when it's law and when it's gospel. And the way that forgiveness of sins is uh, brought out in uh, many and various ways, um, God uh, reveals it to us in Christ. You know, so here forgiveness is looks like what? Instead of the nation being rent apart and put into exile, what's what's forgiveness look like? Bringing, Bringing them back together, gathering them together like a sheep gathers his his flock. Um, any of you, any sheep here? Sheep people, farmers, sheep farmers. Shepherds, I guess is what we call them. I grew up, my, my father was a hog farmer when he was a kid, but then um, as an adult, he wanted to, he's a hobby farmer. He's, we had 10 acres, and so we had sheep, actually, and showed them in the full fair and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's interesting because you don't gather sheep the way, you probably heard this before, you don't gather them maybe the way you would cattle or, or um, hogs. I don't know how you, how you gather those. Maybe, maybe it's the same. How do, how do the... The hogs come into the barn if you need them to. They're probably already in a barn, right? You don't do a lot of pasture raising of hogs. You let them out. Yeah. But they, get, they, get, they know when feeding time is. It's feeding time. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah, it's feeding time. I think cattle's the same way, although you'll have you know, silage out. Oh, there's that too. So they learn that behavior. Yeah, it's out of that need. Yeah, so that's interesting because both of those things are helpful too. Maybe understand the way God works too, right? Well, nowadays, though, with the mega farms, they just they're just in their yeah. stall, and yeah. The little farms. I'm, well, that's what I'm thinking. Sorry. Well, and the Bible's agrarian. Remember that it's an agricultural um, people from Old Testament all the way through. They don't really gather into cities until. Um, I mean, even Jerusalem's not that big; it's just a couple thousand people. And that most of that, it, it only swells to maybe 5,000 or more um, at the Passover each year. Most of the time it's small, and there's little villages. Um, so it's not big city. There's just not big cities in the Bible, um, in, among God's people anyway. Uh, let's see, where are we going? Oh, yeah, so different ways. The, the, the hogs know it's time to eat. 
right? And they know where food is. They know who brings food, maybe. Um, cattle, it's the same thing. They have a need, right? Not, not to be fed, but, but to be milked if it's dairy, I suppose. Um, with sheep, it's the same thing, but, but it's, it's unique because they're, they're maybe, a, you've heard it said they're a little dumb, right? Are they really? Yeah, and they actually are. They're pretty stupid. And um, like, like if they get caught in a fence, they, they will try, they won't, they won't, they'll just try to get out and they'll end up strangling themselves usually. Or just getting so, they'll actually, you know, like have like a, I guess, a heart attack. I mean, just from the stress of it, they'll just die trying to get out of the fence. It's really dumb. And all you have to do is just calm down and then just slip out. Yeah, and just back out. Uh, No, the, uh, no, they'll be out, they'll be out just about doing their thing and it'll be feeding time. And they come at the sound of the, of either the feed or, but usually the, you know, in the case of my father, just his voice. You know, he'll just call them and they'll come in. So, which the Bible picks up on that many times. It's true. Uh, my sheep know my voice. They hear it. They follow me. Something like that. Right, Jesus says. So, it's a beautiful picture. He gathers them together. And, and they actually end up being a noisy multitude. Meaning it's a whole, it's a whole crowd of them. Um, and when it's feeding time, the sheep are pretty loud too, by the way. And uh, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. So, meaning when they were in exile, was it the pasture? No, you, you know that theme from like Psalm 23, right? He brings them into good grazing land, right? Lays them down in green pastures by, by still waters. Yeah, because rushing waters would tear them, you know, they get swept away, but still waters. Um, not full of bugs and algae, but... Uh, or, or those big... What are those big tanks, you know, that you put all this stuff in? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what they're called. What are they called? I don't know the name of them. Oh, I see. I, yeah. Anyway, uh, make a loud noise. 13, the one who breaks open will come up before them. What's that? Who opens the breach? They, and they will break out, pass through the gate, and will go out by it. So when they're in exile in Babylon, they, they are, you know, the Bible talks in a lot of different ways about this, being hemmed in on every side, right? They're in a, they're in a foreign um, pasture. They're, they're in bondage. They're in slavery. It's another way we talk about it. Um, but here, if you're going to use the sheep picture, they're, they're, you know, it's like my father would do. He'd come along with the portable electric fence that was like, it was woven, but it had metal, you know, woven into it. And just surround them and pen them off. Um, and then they can't get out into where, you, where they want to graze, probably. You know, it's not time yet. Um, and here, what's the Lord do? He comes and he breaks open. He, he creates a breach, right? And then they come out. They have a way out, right? And that's, an, again, that's a picture of forgiveness of sins. The, the sin that, that holds you captive and bond, in bondage is you're freed from that, and you, you know, the way out is given to you. They pass through the gate and go out by it. How about that with gates? Does that language come up in the New Testament? Yeah. What are you thinking? Well, it certainly has, has implications for the last day. Too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you know, Christ was the one who, who really opened the gate. He was the one who, who arose first. Yeah, like in the um, Te Deum, which is um, 
canticle of the church. It's really, Luther considered it the fourth creed. And uh, it's in Matins, the service of Matins, which we're doing today, actually. Uh, but we're going to sing the Benedictus, which is Zechariah's song, which belongs in Advent. Uh, it's, uh, I, I saw, I'm like, no, we have to sing the Benedictus because it's Advent. But um, blessed be the Lord God of Abraham, for he has visited and redeemed his people, as we will sing. But the, um, uh, how's it said in the Te Deum? Um, he, oh, now see, I have the hymn version of it in my head. We, we praise you and acknowledge you. Okay, this is why you keep a hymnal in your podium. Cassie had the right idea. Uh, let's see, Matins. Any of you, do you remember singing Matins? Oh, it's a long time ago, yeah. I know. Oh, no, the Te Deum. I was looking for the way it talks about this gate, the gate language. You open the... Yeah, you open the kingdom of heaven to all believers, right? That's that idea of having, there's the way to, to be with the Lord forever has been opened up, right? We sing that a lot in college. Matins? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, Pastor uh, Hintz did, um, you know, one of the things that he, I think, taught you maybe, I don't know, or he restored for you or just brought back was uh, singing Vespers, so, which is kind of its, its pairing. Matins is morning service, Vespers is evening, singing that for those Wednesday services. Um, I'm introducing evening prayer to you. I said I wasn't going to do a lot, but I'm doing a lot already. Uh, we praise you and acknowledge you. Uh, is a, there's a hymn version of the, of the Te Deum. It's a little bit, I think once you learn to sing it, uh, most people love it, but if you haven't sung it before, it's a little intense because it has a, the tune is by Gustav Holtz, and it's from uh, Jupiter, from the, the, the planets. Do you know the planets? By Holtz, classical composer. He's got a, um, you know, a movement on each of the planets. <laughs> yeah, but in, in Jupiter, there's this, there's this hymn at the end, and especially British people, they love it. They sing, what do they sing to that? Oh, you'll usually hear it played at, like, um, at funerals of, like, a, of a king or queen or prince or whatever. They, they love that, that tune. Holst was an English composer. But anyway, we have it set to a hymn, which is a hymn version of the Te Deum. And uh, this is how he says it. Then by your resurrection, you won for us reprieve. You opened heaven's kingdom to all who would believe. Yeah. So I like that with the path idea. But Jesus says that. I said it in the prayer. Um, my word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your, my, your path. Right? And then, but he also says, strive to enter through the... The narrow gate, yeah, that's the language that's really here. And that narrow gate, he says, another, another place that it uh, would be easier for a camel, camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for what a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, the eye of the needle, um, there, there's, I think there's sufficient enough historic evidence that that actually was the name of, of one of the narrowest gates in Jerusalem. So... And yeah, nobody could pass through that. They called it the eye of the needle, you know, because that was where the only people who could slip through are people like Luke who are just like, you know, beanpole, you know, <laughs> getting, can just kind of slide through, you know. Yeah, he takes after, not my family, but uh, Anne's family. Anne's dad was just tall and no meat on his bones, as, as people say. All right, so that's question four, because um, I don't think we did question four.
So we wanted to, I wanted to emphasize the gospel word here. The king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. And that's, oh, that's really today's theme. Um, because of one of the, this happens with, by the way, with both lectionaries. At the beginning of Advent, we begin the same way we begin Holy Week with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I say, why, of all the readings, why do you have that reading two times every year? Right? Uh, it bothers some people and they just change it. <laughs> you know? Um, but, but it's really, it's, it's important to remember as we begin the church here, um, it's kind of like the way the transfiguration shows us heaven, but ahead of time, right? So here we have, we're entering into Jerusalem eh, a little bit ahead of time because we really won't remember that specifically so much until we get to um, beginning, the beginning of Holy Week with Palm Sunday. But, but we have it here too because the Lord comes to us you know, to visit and redeem his people, as you'll sing in the Benedictus, um, in that way, through humbly through means. And in Advent, I think we focus more on what? We usually talk about his Advent, his Adventus in Latin. That's his, his coming, his visiting. How does he come to us? How do we remember it now? Of course, we're looking at four weeks. Oh, Christmas. Yeah, with Christmas. Yeah, coming as a baby in the major, his incarnation, as we say. Um, but also we look, and usually you'll hear it said like, you know, there's two or three or four advents, I don't know, um, that he comes to us um, through his, his means of the Spirit. So through baptism, Lord's Supper, preaching, that's the Lord visiting and redeeming his people, saving you, declaring forgiveness of sins to you. Uh, and then, of course, he will come again. So we've had that theme the last couple of weeks where he'll come in judgment uh, but as you heard last Sunday, last Wednesday, his judgment of you is not guilty, forgiven, acquitted, right? So hearing judgment can be kind of, could come off as being a little harsh. We hear judgmental, you know. You're so judgmental. It's a pejorative thing. Uh, but when the Lord comes to judge, for all those who believe, that it's forgiveness, of course. Uh, and so that'll be the emphasis that he'll come again in glory to um, redeem the living and the dead. Okay. So Advent has that same theme of the Lord coming, but it's, it's this language, right? The king is passing before them with palm branches in their hand and shouting Hosanna. I mean, you can almost hear it there, right? At the Lord at their head. And uh, that's that question that the... Uh, Jesus asked the, the, the Pharisees, you know, well, how is it that, da- that, I, that he could be both David's uh, son and David's Lord, right? Let's see, here you have the king coming and he is the son of David, but also the Lord of Lords. So he, hmm, he is the Lord with the father at, at their head, huh? It's kind of like he blends the two pictures, isn't it? That the king and the Lord are two separate people. But then we blend them together, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Well, David was the king that they sought after, of course. Hmm. Lots of fun stuff there. But let's not dig too hard. All right. Good. Uh, Question five. Let's look at this. Put the attitude expressed by the false prophets in verse 7 into your own words. Is such an attitude still prevalent today among church leaders? How so? This is always, you know, like I said, it had an immediate context, but uh, it's amazingly applicable sometimes. Let's go back to verse 6, actually. Do not, my, I'll read my translation here. Do not prattle. 
you say to those who prophesy? Prattle. That's a, that's a good word, right? So they shall not prophesy to you um, or to these. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? That's right. That's verse 7. All right. So put that into your own words. Hmm. Do you catch what's going on there? He's not really mad at you. Well, it would be this way. I'd be the preacher. He's not really mad at you. He's okay with you. He accepts you just the way you are. He made you after all, right? He made you this way. So you've you've probably heard that before, right? Um, As a way of not forgiving sin, but doing what with sin? Covering it. Obscusing it, obscuring it, covering it up. I mean, forgiveness of sins is a covering for sin, but it's covered in Christ's blood. It's a little different, right? So he's, yeah, he's, they're covering for you. Um, I think I suggested last week, or maybe I was thinking it and then I didn't say it, because you never know how this goes, um, that uh, the greatest threat, I would say, I agree with a pastor friend of mine who posed this in a sermon a couple weeks ago, the greatest threat um, to the Christian church, in America at least, uh, as we can see it, is apathy. Apathy. Uh, apathy meaning, what do you think, kids? I don't care. Yeah, ah, pathos. Pathos meaning feeling. <laughs> um, and we put an A in front of something, it negates it, right? So without feeling. Once more with feeling. <laughs> I, I do that sometimes. The kids can remember this. If, if I say amen and the congregation goes amen, I'll say, let's try that again. I haven't done it yet because it's, I feel like I'm treating people like children. You know? You know. <laughs> well, that's true. I know, I know. But it's, yeah, no, amen means yes, I believe, or yes, it's, this is true. And then if you say, well, amen, then you're kind of like, is it really true? Do you really believe it? Yeah. So uh, what are we saying about amen or speaking up? Where was I going with this? The preacher? Apathy. Apathy. Thank you. Yeah, without feeling. And um, um, I was talking about this before a little bit with the word. But one of the reasons why um, God instructs us to join um, music to his word is because it's, it, the words are powerful in and of themselves. Um, but then music, it stirs not just the intellect, or even the heart, but really the emotion of the person. Oh, by the way, a lot of information. Sorry, when the Bible talks about your heart, your heart is not the place of feeling in the Bible. Yeah, your mind, okay, so mind, heart is the place of faith. When we say, I have Jesus in my heart, it means I believe, I trust. It's not an emotional thing. So when you say, I, I love, or I have emotion, uh, how does Jesus say it? When, when, he, when he saw the multitudes, he had yeah. compassion on them. And the, um, you've probably heard this before. Our, our synodical president, for about two years, this is all he talked about. <laughs> so I'm sure uh, somebody picked it up and you repeated it to you in some context. But the, word, the Greek word there is splagidzomai. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. Splagidzo. <laughs> so it's from splankna, which sounds like it's onomatopoeia, if you know grammar. It's a word that sounds like what it is. So splunk nut. Yeah, you hear spleen in that? It, it, 
It's a way of, what do we say? Upchuck, vomit, regurgitating, <laughs> splunkna. Yeah, it's literally that, that when he has compassion for them, that his, that his inward parts moved, his gut. And we, we still have retained that. I have a gut feeling, right? Yeah, so we still, yeah, we still have some expressions that say emotion is in, in, in the gut. Which is funny. It's just funny. I mean, it's it's both the Hebrew and Greek way of thinking. Uh, we just don't think that way. Um, so when I say music has a way of, it, it engages not only your mind and your heart, so not only intellect and faith, but your gut. Um, I don't know. What do we say? You know, get get the chills up and down your spine. You ever had that? You know, in a powerful like musical moment, um, they can do that like a concert or for us it's when we go to I would say go to something like Higher Things we have a thousand youth like down at Mequon that was what 2015 and it began this summer you know and they're all singing at, and there's, maybe there's an orchestra and it's just a powerful moment and that it's the same words and they have the same effect um, upon mind and heart but not necessarily on the whole person the way that music does so why did I bring up music and moving people oh What's that? Apathy. Yeah. So feeling. And there is a place for feeling. And I, uh, I've not, not always been that great about it because I'm kind of, a, I guess, more intellectual and less emotional. I'm kind of, um, uh, if I were a Greek philosopher, I'd be a Stoic, <laughs> you know, or, or if I were not Christian, I'd be more like a Buddhist, which is trying to escape pain and suffering and those feelings especially, <laughs> Right. And we try to do that too. Whereas, um, you know, like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for joy and there's a time for sorrow, right? And so you cry with those, you mourn with those who mourn and you rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, we, don't, we don't ignore the pathos, the feeling. Um, and it's probably one of the hardest things for pastors is something that they today diagnose as compassion fatigue. Have you ever heard of that? Like nurses, caregivers um, will have this, doctors sometimes. Although, you ever wonder why doctors have this kind of like disconnected um, demeanor? They call it what bedside manner, <laughs> right? Where they care. They seem to care, but they don't. It's not because they're apathetic. They're empathetic. It's, so rather than having compassion, that means they feel with you. <laughs> they have empathy. They um, feel next to you, if you like. They understand your feelings, and they try to communicate that. And then some, but some probably are just apathetic. They just act like they don't care. But that's actually a coping mechanism, so that they don't um, literally just burn out from all of that feeling, all that hurt and suffering and pain that you will see in that setting. Same thing with pastors, right? So you ever wonder why isn't a pastor breaking up in the sermon? You know, at a funeral, it was because he's keeping an emotional distance from. Well, sometimes. It depends how well you know the person, in my case. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So he's not apathetic. But that, that's what the prophets are arguing for, right? Um, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are, are these his doings? Meh, maybe not, right? Didn't the Lord say he's just going to take care of you? you know, so what are you so worried about? Don't worry about it. Uh, God would never judge sinners. He would never send them into exile. He would never make their life difficult. He would never allow them to experience suffering or pain or hardship or loss. Right? 
That's, some preachers will say that. Oh, not only that, to be poor. <laughs> um, he would never humble you. He would only you know, lift you up and make you even more, more of who you are. Right? You will not surely die. You will not surely die when you eat the Yeah, oh boy. Hmm. That was the first false preacher right there. Good quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, is it prevalent? I think so. Um, you know, I've been told... Uh, well, no, I, didn't, I wasn't told. I read an article. Um, this was in Christianity, Christianity Today. And uh, uh, I think... Or maybe it was some. Maybe it was a mainstream press, um, but it was this woman saying that the church has been gaslighting her. That, that was the title. The church has been gaslighting me. Do you know what gaslighting is? That phrase. No, it's part of this. It's it's a term that came, is part of this. I don't know the origin of it, but it, it's part of the social justice movement. You know, the whole equality for everyone and need to um, uh, be more attentive to to the oppressed and the minority and the and women and whatever. Um, so gaslighting is um, basically psychological manipulation to do harm, right? So the church is intentionally psychologically dragging me down so that I stay in an oppressed position. That's what she was saying. So they're teaching me things intentionally so that I am not empowered, enabled, so that I'm restricted, um, that I don't have a place in the church, and so some of her critiques are very good, but, but one of them that she makes is, you know, they keep telling me that I'm a sinner. You know? And you could see how that would be re- received as, as not only judgment, but as a, a way of, like, like psychological manipulation. Um, sometimes law gospel preaching can come off this way. It's like, you're just tearing me down so that you can, you know, control me. And even control me in the good news, Right? that you're the only one who has the gospel and you have to be joined to me or to this church. Of course, this is how God works, is he calls sinners to repentance. He calls them sinners to bring them to repentance, to forgive them. If anybody's emotionally, or uh, if anybody's manipulating you, it's God <laughs> through his word, right? And that's what confession absolution is all about. And he does it by the work of his spirit. So that's why I say, she's not entirely wrong, but some, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting to see the church as being manipulative. So she would say, we, we should not be preaching that, that you're a sinner. We should be preaching to you that you are set free from sin. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that part of, wasn't that part of Luther's breaking away from the Catholic Church, which was all this law, all this hmm. damnation, so to speak, and not the true forgiveness? That's... I think the medieval Catholic Church, if anybody was gaslighting, they were the ones because they were attaching um, forgiveness to, 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 we would say, pious behavior, actually good churchly behavior, but then they made it into legal obligation and said, if you didn't do it, you're endangering your salvation. Um, and especially with then creating this whole scheme called purgatory, um, which was this <laughs> a very imaginative way of reading a, a verse from an apocryphal book, <laughs> And, from, and a little verse from Jude as well. But create this whole scheme that it turned out to be a wonderful fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think the church does that. We probably still do that when, when it comes to fundraising. We can be pretty, you know, we have to avoid that, trying to be manipulative and saying this is out of obligation or even out of duty. Um, but that, that giving, both in support of the church but also to those in need, 
is a response of faith um, worked by the Holy Spirit. And uh, just get out of his way and let him have his way with you is kind of the best way to maybe to, to encourage that. But I think you're right. And here's where it gets really kind of tricky because um, um, American evangelicalism, not, not evangelical as in of the gospel, like in the name of this congregation, which in some places the EV or evangelical is listed. In some places it isn't probably because it's such a long word. <laughs> and then you can't fit it on the sign or on the letterhead or whatever. But historically we were called evangelical. And why? Because we were of the gospel. That's the title that Luther wanted his, the congregations that followed after um, what he discovered in the gospel. They, he wanted to be known as people of the gospel, evangelicals. Um, unfortunately, they chose to be called Lutherans, which means that... Um, even in his own lifetime, which means that to this day, people think we're a cult that follow after some guy named Luther. I don't know if you've encountered that. Kind of like if you're a Buddhist, you follow after the teaching of the Buddha, right? They say, aren't you Christian? Don't you follow after Christ? And you're like, well, yeah, we are. Um, but there's this guy named Luther, and da 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 and you try to explain it. And you're like, ah, no, I'm just a Christian. <laughs> okay, let's just go. Or evangelical would be fine. American evangelicalism, when I say that term, is another thing altogether. Because now we're talking about churches that um, largely are unaffiliated. So they don't like affiliate with another church body, largely. Uh, although there are exceptions to that. But probably the church groups that would fall under this um, would be, let's see, Methodist, Pentecostal, and maybe Baptist. And then, and then all the people who are either Methodist, Pentecostal, Baptist, or some combination of thereof who call themselves non-denominational. <laughs> but but it, they all have statements of faith. There's very few non-denominational churches that don't have some statement of faith that actually is probably just Methodist or Baptist or some flavor in between. Even Lutherans who are non-denominational. They're still Lutheran. They just try to drop the Lutheran name to be a little bit more appealing. Um, then the only people who are truly non-denominational would be Unitarian. And they are not in the evangelical camp, so we'll just separate them up. Unitarians, we have a UCC church in, in uh, Random Lake. Uh, UCC says, every, you can believe whatever you want. We have no creeds. Um, in other words, we have every creed. <laughs> no creeds is every creed. In uh, UCC, uh, well, for example, I told you, I think, maybe a couple of weeks, last week, about the woman in Canada who said she was an atheist, but she was a UCC pastor. And um, there were people who said, well, you can't be our pastor if you're an atheist. And then it went to whatever court system they have in their church body for examination, review. And their church body said, oh, no, no, she's welcome. You can be a, you can be a straight-up atheist and be a pastor in our ch- church. Because oh, we can't exclude anybody. That's our, that's our creed, actually, is that no one's excluded. So anyway, under this evangelical umbrella, which is what we'll call all of this, or evangelicalism, basically, and Michael will probably get Mike, you probably, you would probably see it better than some of us. If you came out of the Roman Catholic Church, um, the way that evangelical preaching sounds and modern Roman Catholic preaching sounds is almost the same. So God loves you. Now obey, do what he tells you to do, and to prove your salvation, basically. Which is actually medieval Catholicism as well. Um, it's not as a... Modern Roman Catholicism doesn't have the, the, the um, 
what do, you, what do we call it uh, when you buy purgatory time? Indulgences. Indulgences. They do, but they don't make a big deal out of it like they did in Luther's day. Like when uh, it was the 500th anniversary of the cathedral in France, um, out in the middle of nowhere, that some guy thought it would be helpful to build some bishop. Um, it's really supposedly very beautiful. I had the choice of either going there or going to Normandy when I was in France. We went to Normandy instead, went all along the beaches there. Um, but we could have gone to this cathedral. And it turns out if we had gone, that year was a jubilee year declared by, um, by Pope Benedict at the time, who said, um, if you go there, you get something like a million years off of purgatory. Well, because they wanted, they wanted visitors because out in the middle of nowhere. And then, of course, then they make the big appeal. We need to restore all these windows because they were known for the stained glass windows. Where is it? Tours, maybe? No, that's not right. Tours is in France. I can't name, remember the name of the place. So they still do this as a fundraiser, was my point. You know, you can get, you can get plenary indulgence, time off of purgatory for various things. Um, so we don't have that in evangelicalism, but we have other things that sound a lot like, like this. You know, you're, just, you're, you're a good person. God wants, God accepts you for who you are. Um, and, uh, you know, you should show that to him. You should prove that to him, right? Uh, and you should, you should believe in him rather than God believes in you and he takes he gives you faith. It's the other way around. All right? So just pay attention to that. And I'll bring that out more probably uh, as we're talking. Question six. How do the prophets today preach of wine and strong drink? Verse 11. Do they do that? <laughs> no. I guess they... Well, see, the thing is, it's literally, I will drip... To you of wine and drink. The Hebrew has many re- meanings by the time you get to Micah. Um, it's expanded. He would be the prattler's people. What do you think? And then it says, look at 2 Timothy. That's a, good, that's a good place to look, actually. 2 Timothy 4, right? Yeah, that's a good, good place to look. While you're getting there, um, you might also consider something like Isaiah. Who said, say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Give us smooth. (laughs) Prophesy deceits. Or also uh, Jeremiah, I think, is another good one. Let's see if I've got that here. Yeah. Um, You know. (laughs) the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and the people love to have it so. They love it that way. But what will you do in the end? All right, what's, uh, what's, what's 2 Timothy 4 say? Who wants to read that? Don, you want to read it? You got it there? I'm not. Okay, you're waiting for somebody else. Who's got it? Okay, Cassie's got it. Go. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Right. So this is St. Paul talking to little young Pastor Timothy, 20-something pastor, probably at this point, if even that. Um, 
trying to give him some wisdom, right? And especially the verse there was a verse three, the time will come when they will not endure. What did you say? Sound teaching. Sound teaching. Yeah, the word is doctrine, didache. Sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. I don't, we don't use that expression, except for in the Bible, right? Your ears ever itch? But it just means, prick my, we say to prick the ear. Don't we? we use that expression, right? Your ears pricked up, that's when you hear something um, that's appropriate to you. Having itching ears, um, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside. What's your say? End of verse 4. We'll go after what? Wander off into myths. Wander off into myths, yeah. Or you could say, be turned aside to fables. You could say it that way too. Myth and fable. So, I mean, does this happen? How do they do it today? I think we already mentioned a little bit. Like, you tell me what I want to hear, right? Um, you know, condone my behavior, right? Tell me, tell me that what I'm doing is good. Um, don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. So we get that. But what else? Is there more there? Yeah, I think God, you know, God just wants us to be happy and, and, and who we are and to I mean it's not wrong to say that um, what people expect from the church, what they expect from even Bible class here, um, but from, from her pastors then too, the church's pastors, is um, to be accepted. That's a, I mean, that's kind of an emotional and a, and a heart thing. Um, the, you want to be accepted by your peers, um, but even more so, what, what drives people to the church is they want to be accepted by God. They want to know that God loves them, that he cares for them. Right? Now, there's, two, there's different ways you could, you could actually uh, fulfill that, that felt need, if you like. Right? You could give them acceptance by just saying, we'll take you in just the way we are. All people are welcome as you are. No repentance required. <laughs> you know, no amendment of life. That's not been the Christian church's practice. I mean, from the earliest days, um, we know this from the like, instruction manuals on how to, um, they wrote manuals on how to be pastors in these churches, early churches. Um, they would give you, in ancient custom, they would appoint a sponsor. Where have we heard that language? Mm-hmm. I heard that baptism last week. They would appoint a sponsor for adult converts. And what was the sponsor's job? The same thing as you would have like in an Alcoholics Anonymous group. So it's an, it's an accountability partner, if you like. Because you would come and say, I was a thief, or I was a, um, what do we call it, a sex worker, or I was whatever. And, and the church would say, um, that's not what God would have you be. And you'd say, okay, I repent. And then they would actually examine you through your sponsor before you were baptized which makes us a little uncomfortable. We'd just like to baptize them right away and let God figure it out. <laughs> but, but they would wait and see, are you truly, have you truly amended your life or did you just say that just to you know, gain access to the community or whatever it is? So they would be accepted, not necessarily for who they were, but you are accepted for who you are in Christ. You catch the difference with that? You're not accepted because of who you are outside of faith, 
who are according to the flesh. God does not accept sinners into his presence. He does accept those who have been forgiven and are joined to his son Jesus, clothed in him. Right? That's why that clothing is important, because that's what he sees. He sees his son when he sees you. He doesn't see you. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Right? So you're accepted um, by God through the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Right? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is for you. Right? Um, and then that's what makes you acceptable before your neighbor. So that's, that's the other part. People say, I want to be, be welcome in this community. Um, and actually, all are welcome in this community in the forgiveness of sins, right? That you come, you repent. It doesn't mean that your life here is always going to be easy. Like, for example, if you're a convicted child molester and you want to be a part of this parish, I don't know if you have any. I haven't found out yet, right? But if you, you, we would want them to be hearing God's word. But we would also recognize that you are, according to the flesh, a sinner, and, and that's been manifest in a very particular way that, had, that has much legal consequence, right? Um, like even ability to get a job and anything, right? Um, and even that in the midst of this community, that would have its effect as well. Like you wouldn't ever be alone around children, for example. You know? Um, probably not, probably wouldn't be, for, the, for your own sake, not be a part of, of the school, the ministry of the school, right? Or Sunday school or whatnot. Uh, and maybe even in church, I don't know, you don't, you don't sit at the front with all the kids, you sit at the back. Because you just, you can't, we can't um, put you in a position where, where you're tempted to sin. And two, we also don't want to give the impression that, your sin, that we're condoning your sin, that, we're a lot, that we agreed with it. Because now you're a full-fledged member. Does that make sense? So it's recognizing everybody is, is a, has a dual existence. You're a sinner and a saint according to a declaration by God. So, yeah, I think maybe that's what preachers, the modern-day preachers like to do is just to say, oh, the sinner is gone and the saint is here. Or to say, oh, that thing that we called sin, it's really not sin. It's just, it's just kind of like, you're just, yeah, and now you're working on it. And you come to church to work on it. Um, I would say that's not exactly wrong. I mean, that's the whole point, that the identifying that people are looking for acceptance is great, but then we want to draw, drag them into the, <laughs> the way that God accepts them. Not because of preachers that just kind of soft pedal or smooth things over, um, but actually through the call to repentance and then the way that drives you um, to forgiveness in Jesus. Does that follow? So that's chapter 2. I guess we could have done more. Um, I was ready to do chapter 3, but chapter 2 was good. And I don't think we really dealt that much with verses 12 and 13. So, Was that helpful? All right, good. You can take the sheets with you. I don't need them back. So I'll do that. And uh, let's close with prayer. Lord God, you call us to uh, repentance by showing us um, our sin, our sins of our own heart, the sins of our community, of our world all the ways that we are tempted to go against your word. You do this not to hurt and harm us, not to drive us away, but rather to gather us in as we are gathered to your son, Jesus, in whom we have our redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins through his blood. We ask that you continue this work not only among us, but among all those um, who are in our midst, in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.